The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Oh, Father, we say thank you for what we just sang, that it is finished. You have done the impossible. You have reconciled sinners to yourself, made peace, saved. Thank you. And you have done still far more than we could ask or imagine you have, as the song said, given the keys of the kingdom into the hands of children. Thankful you have not left us, the children, alone, but have given us your spirit to guide us. We say thank you, thank you, thank you. And I stand before you to pray, Lord, before we open up your word. And I pray acknowledging a, a significant disconnect in our lives as your redeemed children. We read in the the psalm, I read Psalm 16, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. We read that, we acknowledge it, we say yes to it, but then we must also admit that we seek good in plenty of other places. We are children redeemed, given Your Spirit. We call You Lord. We are, we are made a people for You and we wander. Oh Lord. Would you draw near now and by your Spirit deal with us, your people? Would you be the shepherd that we need, that we would not be sheep wandering over the mountains lost? We are sheep claimed by you. Those of us here who are Christians, we are yours. We say thank you. It is finished. Amen. But we also know that we still walk the earth harassed and helpless and often act like sheep that don't have a shepherd. So draw near. Grab us. Lead us. Please. Draw us back to yourself acknowledging not just with lip, but in, in, in the deepest part of us that holds us, that we have no good apart from You, that You are our Lord. Those are words that we understand. Spirit of God, You must make that real in our hearts and cause us to walk in it. Cause us to walk in it. Do more, O oh Father, Son, and Spirit. Do more than tell us that we should walk in it. Cause us to walk in it 
walk in union with you. Lined up closely behind a shepherd who is our Lord and from whom we find all good. Apart from whom there is no good. Do a work this morning, Lord. And the next day and the next, we look to you and we need. And you are a great provider. So I pray now that as we open up the word that you will teach us that you will affect some bit of change, whatever particular thing is needed in whatever particular person's life we have here, a bunch of us here in all kinds of different places. You know the, the, the little change, the, the half turn that will start us off on the right path. You, you know perhaps the significant reorientation that, that someone's whole world needs to be turned upside down and, and everything in between. Lord, you know, and so I pray affect it on every person, man, woman, child here. Make a people that is pleasing to you and that is pleased in you. Claim those who don't know you. Save, Father, please. We look to you in need and we say thank you that you are near to lead. We pray this in your name, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. We return this morning to the book of Second Samuel, the beginning of chapter 5. Three weeks ago when we were last in Samuel, in, in chapter 4, we saw David's response to the murder of a man named Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth, you may recall if you were here, was the king of the eleven northern tribes of Israel, while David himself was king just of one tribe, of the king of Judah in the south. And these two groups had been at war against each other for some time after the death of Saul. There'd been some fighting and there'd been a lot of political intrigue and there'd been some wheeling and dealing and some murdering. And as things were going, the northern tribes were about to give their allegiance over to David. And sensing which way the wind was blowing, two of Ishbosheth's army officers decided to kill him and bring his head to David so as to gain some favor with David. So that's what they did. Chapter four, they killed him and brought David's, brought David the evidence and then David promptly executed them seeing it for what it was, murder, wickedness. He acts as the just judge and, and does what's right against these killers. But what drew our particular attention was David's line of reasoning in verse 9 that, that explained how it was that when faced with this, with this opportunity to exploit the situation and to gain for himself perhaps even greater favor, how it was that David walked in righteousness and in obedience to the Lord. What was going on there? He gives us a little clue, the line of reasoning in verse 9. The, and the wording was, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, I'm going to do what's right. And we've traced out the, the logic in that, the reasoning. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to walk in obedience. I'm going to walk forward believing in obedience because of the Lord who lives to redeem and has redeemed me from everything. So I look back and I see what kind of God this God who lives is and I believe that He will be that God for me tomorrow and I will hold fast to Him in obedience. 
It's obedience of faith based on remembering what God has done before. That was the the important point that we drew out of verse 9, central to what we learned from chapter 4. Now as we come to chapter 5, we're entering a new section of the book, something we've been waiting for for a long time. David becomes king over all of Israel now, finally. This has been years and years and years and years and years and years and years in the making, which is part of the point. God's promise has been a long time in coming, but it has come, surely. So we'll consider today from the first half of chapter 5, David finally coming to the throne and being settled, established, and exalted as king over all of Israel. We'll look at what that meant and what it means beginning part of chapter 5. Let me read the text, 5 verses 1 through 16. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nonetheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who were hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David. These are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, Shemua, Shabab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Jephiah, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. That's the passage. This passage, as well as the second half that we'll look at next week, it's a collection of episodes paragraphs, a collection of episodes arranged by theme, not by chronology. Not not, not arranged by the timing of it. They're gathered together according to theme to present us different snapshots of David becoming king and then being established and settled as king. 
if we look at this, for instance, Hiram, king of Tyre, he was not actually king of Tyre until much later in David's reign. And the gathering of all these wives and the birthing of all these sons, these are sons, the daughters aren't named, would have taken, of course, many years. But it's being presented to us all together, clustered together to give us a, a, a picture. Here's what it looks like for David to gain a throne, to gain and build a city, to gain and build a house, and to gain and build a family. Established and settled as king. They're all gathered together to communicate that to us. It does, of course, though naturally begin with David becoming king over all Israel, which verses 1 through 3 lay out for us. The elders of the tribes of the northern tribes came to him at Hebron, and they said to him some things, three things in particular. First, they said, you are one of us, you are our bone and flesh, so according to Deuteronomy 17, according to the law, you can be king over us. You want to follow the law. Have to be one of the Israelites. You can be king. And secondly, in fact, you have been the one who was the king. Even when Saul was king, you led us out and brought us in. That's military terminology. You led us out on campaign and brought us in. You were the leader of the people even when Saul was the leader of the people. You've been the one acting like king. And thirdly, you were the one who was promised to be king. This is the most important statement. The Lord said to you, and there's emphasis in the original on you, the Lord said to you that you shall shepherd the people. That's a verb there. It's not actually a noun. You shall shepherd the people. You shall be prince. The term that's often used to describe the king because in God's eyes, he's not actually the king, not actually in charge. God's the king. He's the king beneath the king. Number two, prince. You, not, Dave, not Saul, not Jonathan, you, David, would be the one to shepherd. You would be prince. We see right there in those two, those two lines an important connection which we need to, to kind of get our minds on a little bit because we've got to understand something about this term shepherd. To shepherd. We see the connection. You would be the one to shepherd. You would be prince. And you, we need to realize something there. Shepherds are kings. This is a connection. The, these two terms... Outside of the Bible, not just God came up with this, but other nations often called their kings the shepherds. Of course, it's in the Bible too. So we need to think a little bit about what, what a shepherd is. A shepherd primarily is a leader, a ruler. And it's perhaps important for us to kind of rehabilitate the image of shepherd in our mind. We in modern America think of shepherd often and we only get one little piece of the picture. Perhaps we've seen too many paintings of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, with neatly coiffed hair and a white robe, cuddling the little lamb. That is a piece. It needs to be in the larger context. We don't want to throw out the gentle part, but we need to include in it the rest of the context. The king, the leader, the ruler part of that. This, this is an idea, that the connection of these two terms is an idea that arises long before the Bible, and of course it arises from the, the actual context of fields and flocks, where shepherds interacted with sheep. They fed them. They nursed them. They fought against the wolves. They took them to where they could eat, drink, 
kept them from getting lost. There's a whole lot of guidance and leadership and feeding. And if in your mind, what, what, what that equates to is something kind of like chief therapist, emoter, feeler, and cuddler, you're missing a piece. I, I say it like that because I talk to lots of people who say, I need to be shepherded. And what they mean is cuddled. Now, very carefully, I don't want to so hammer on this that I throw out gentle, because the Bible repeatedly takes the image of shepherd and says, when it obviously, you, as you well know, it attaches to Jesus, he's the good shepherd, he is gentle. He is gracious and kind with His sheep. That is very, 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 very clearly in the image. But in modern America, we sometimes have made that the image itself. And you miss the fact that kings are shepherds. Kings. You, David, are to shepherd the people. You are to be the king. So, we'll come back to that. I'm going to say more about that later, but I want to kind of maybe fix that image a little bit in our minds. David is to be king so that he can shepherd. He's going to do it from Jerusalem. So then we get the the flow of the passage. He comes to the city Jerusalem, the Gentile holdout in the middle of the land that the last great shepherd couldn't take. Moses in Numbers 27 was about to pass away. He called on the Lord, Lord, you've got to send somebody who will, send, who will lead out and bring in the people so that they won't be like sheep without a shepherd. And he gave him Joshua. And Joshua, you read about this at the beginning of Judges, when they came into the land, they took Jerusalem, but they couldn't hold it. So a little island here in the, in the midst of the tribe of Benjamin, a little island, a city that was still held by Gentiles. The shepherd could take everything else, Joshua and the people under him, but they couldn't take that city And so then along comes the king and fixes that problem. Read the language about all the taunting and whatnot, but uh, David takes the city, makes that his capital, and builds it up, builds the city. And then the Gentile, Hiram of Tyre, comes and builds him a house. And then he builds a family which is another one of these places which happens so often. I hope your eyes have been opened to this as we read through. David is one of the great heroes of the Bible, and I hope your eyes have been opened to repeatedly. We catch David and we say, yeah! This is another one of those passages. He becomes king. He comes to Jerusalem. He's built a house, and then he throws Deuteronomy 17 under the bus again and again and again and again. The same passage that... The tribal leaders are thinking about, he's not thinking about. We have to have a king who will lead us out and will bring us in, who will be one of our own, comma, who will not take many wives for himself because they will lead him astray. David comes from Hebron with six women, adds in Michal, number seven, and then takes countless more here. Never mind what the law says. David is a good king. David is a good shepherd. 
David is a mighty man of God. And he is a man. Again and again and again we find this, it, the text lifts up David. Our, our hope is cast onto David. And then there's a, at the end, comma, but look beyond him because you need somebody else. You need a king of righteousness and justice who will hear the law and will press it through his own life into the people. Always, not just mostly. So we find here at the end just another little comma in this last paragraph. We need somebody more. Should set us looking, seeing here a, a marvelous, wonderful work of God and expecting something a little more still. That's the passage. It leads us longing. But it should also leave us marveling. There's something good here. Maybe challenging, good, and leave us longing. Let me talk about two observations from this passage. They fit together, but I'm going to present them one at a time here. The first one is this. David is established and exalted by the Lord according to His promise. David is established and exalted by the Lord according to His promise. Verse 2 reiterates what we've known for some time now. The Lord has determined that David would be king. It would help us to pause, before we move too far, to pause to, to note how long that promise has been sitting, or perhaps we say hanging out there. If we trace it back, they say, the Lord said to you, well, actually the Lord said to Saul first, before David was even born, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you, and I'm going to give it to your neighbor. And then he first spoke it to David through Samuel, probably when David was 12, 13 years old. And then David killed Goliath when he was about probably 17 or so. Well, David's 37 years old now. 37. True, he got a little bit of this promise fulfilled a few years back when he came to reign over one of the 12 tribes, just one. But for decades, he's been sitting before it. Here's a promise. Wait. Here's a promise. Wait. Not yet. And in the meantime, keep running, hiding, suffering, fearing, fighting, scrapping. Wait. For one more year, decade. It's been out there a long time. The promise. And it would be easy to assume, I think, if I was in his shoes, when we are in that position of, of sitting in front of a promise and seeing all kinds of hardship, all kinds of adversity and affliction, and on the other side, there's a word and only a word. It would be easy to look at that and say, I don't know what, how that's going to happen, if that's going to happen. I doubt it will. It would be easy to look at that and say it's fallen or it's going to fall. But here it is fulfilled. It comes about. And he stands there finally. I mean, sometimes we never get to experience it quite so clearly. But he stands there and says, what do you know? I am 
actually king over all of Israel. I am seated on a throne in my palace, in my city, the city of David, amongst all of my people. It happened. How? How did it happen? Well, clearly all throughout the Bible and, and even this passage, we see human beings involved, acting. We've, we've seen this repeatedly. They've used the word providence a bunch of times. It's all over these texts. God used people. The elders came and recited some things. And David made a covenant and he devised a military campaign. And, and a Gentile king decided it would be good to form an alliance with him. Absolutely people. But the text pushes us as it always does. The text pushes us beyond instruments into the hand that wields them. Beyond looking at reasons to see the reason. How did this happen? It's extremely clear. Look at verse 12. Who did David realize had established him as king? The tribal elders, when they came, made a covenant with him? Abner, maybe? If you recall some of the past chapters, Abner, when Abner kind of brokered a deal? Joab, when he knocked off Abner? David, with his clever military strategy and and his skill with a weapon? Who established him as king? text says, and David knew that the Lord had established him and that the Lord, he, had exalted his kingdom. Verse 10, then, David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. I highly doubt I'm telling you anything that you don't intellectually know. But the text puts this right in front of us to make it extremely clear again. The promise made way back when. Why did it come about? How did it come to be that David reigned and was established and was exalted, becoming greater and greater and greater? One reason. Well, a hundred reasons. One reason. One force. Lots of forces. No. One, the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. This is the Lord. His name means I am. This is the one who is being, who always is. He is the commander, the Lord of hosts. That's the terminology for the armies of heaven. Myriads, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of... angelic warriors which is told to us to, to get an idea because, and realize there's God's doing, to, doing something to present an idea to you because it doesn't really if you think about it it does not really matter that he is the commander of angelic armies this is the one who is who speaks into existence who sustains all existence and as soon as he starts to stop existence ends his power is not enhanced by many warriors His power is not enhanced by them being angelic warriors. By definition, you cannot enhance omnipotence. We are told that He is the the Lord of hosts to present an image to, to us. Because we look around at the world and we see powers and we fear them. The greatest thing that we fear 
are armies with weapons. And so we're told in very contradictory way, here's an army with weapons, well, here's an army with weapons. And the one who commands them says, thus and so, and it is. He is the commander, the God of hosts, the Lord. And He made a promise. And so, of course, is the conclusion we're supposed to reach, of course it comes to pass. It cannot not come to pass. The Lord, according to His promise, established and exalted David as king. That's the first point. So let's think about what that means for us now. And, and as I'm thinking about this, I've got kind of a, of a descending upside-down pyramid, if you will. Layers that draw closer to the, the central issue. The first one that I'm going to talk about here, before we press on towards, towards the main point at the bottom, the main thrust of this, is to pause for a moment and just think about this God and His power to bring about His long-standing promises. We all need to consider that. There are some, I, I know, because I know some of you, I know there are some of you right now who need to think about this and let it sit on you. This same God who carried this David through people wanting to kill him chasing him around the land, causing him to live on the run in caves, hated, rejected, tricked, deceived. He carried him through all of that and brought about, what do you know, the fullness of His promised kingdom. That same God is the God who said, I am with you and will never leave you nor forsake you. He is the Lord, the God of hosts, with you, for you, to bring about everything He's promised you. It will, of course, happen. He's the commander of the host of heaven. Now, I think I got carried away there and my, and my tone sounded a little strident. I do not mean it to be strident. I mean it to be uplifting and encouraging because the person that I'm thinking of in my mind right now, that, that person, I mean that category of people, you are hard-pressed, afraid maybe, downcast, wondering because everything against you seems overwhelming. If this God could carry this man, David, He can carry you. His promise, His Word to you to carry you all the way, all the way through every affliction and to redeem you from every adversity, His promise will not, cannot fall. So brother, sister first thing you need to consider here is that is that is more true than everything you see with your eyes hope in that and when you find yourself uh grab hold of yourself and say no hope in that 
Sometimes you've got to take yourself in hand and drag yourself back to what's true. And that is true. He is the God who makes promises and surely has power and intention to keep them for you. More pointedly, though, it's not quite so generic as that. This text is about more pointedly. It's about God establishing David as king and exalting him as king and growing David and his power as king greater and greater. And so all of us stop and consider something marvelous. A promise made to David to make him king. And this is not, again, this is the place where the text points us on, looking beyond, looking for more. Because God did not intend that there only be a king who was established, exalted, great, and powerful over his people until David died. And then after that, nothing. God determined that he was going to be king over his people through a king. David is the start, but we well know that that traces on to somebody else. Somebody who is Davidic, like David, but better. David, makes a, David is the recipient of a promise that I will make a king. And he will rule. Established. Rooted. And he will, he will be lifted up and made greater and greater. I will give, in fact, not just this little place, but I will give all of the nations, I'm thinking Psalm 2, I will give all of the nations to this king. A promise. If we sit here in a room on blue chairs in a gym and say, Really? Because it doesn't look like that. That was a promise made, I don't know, you know, how many thousand years ago has it been now? A while. His promises do not fall. He is the I am, the commander of the hosts of heaven. It will come to pass. It is coming to pass even as we sit here. God the Father is in the process of bringing every knee to bow, bringing every tongue, tribe, people, and nation to heal under the authority of Jesus. That is happening. If you're a Christian, you should take heart in that. And if you're not a Christian, you should be warned by it. This all is going somewhere. It is all a line. History is not a circle. History is not a cloud. History is a line. It is going somewhere. 
And every step along the way, although we may look in any given year or in any given century and say, I do not see how this is happening. I I think that it's worse than last year, it seems. But every step along the line, God the Father is drawing together every single strand of existence, powers invisible and visible, whether they be thrones or principalities, whether they be in heaven or on earth. Through Him was all things made. Under Him will all things rest. He is bringing it to pass. Be encouraged and be warned by that. He is establishing and exalting His Son as King, making Him greater and greater, and one day every knee will acknowledge that. This is important, not just so so that we we get on the right side of the line and say, okay, except that I believe and that I'm good, but so that you have a, a great a big picture perspective on what's going on every day in life. God is about lifting up His Son to make Him supreme. He will be King over everything, over all of the nations. And thirdly, most pointedly, He will be King over you. Church. Christian. Because the focus, if I get it most narrowly here, the focus of the passage, David becomes king over Israel. Yes, we have Jerusalem. And yes, we have Tyre, Hiram, creeping into the side. So there's a, there's a view of the nations there, but mostly this is about he becomes king over all of the people. which should make us think about us. And I need need to say, think about yourself here carefully. I do not mean to, although perhaps, I, I don't know, but perhaps this needs to strike you as a rebuke. I do not mean it that way. Rebukes belong to high handed sin. What I mean by high handed sin? The Bible talks about high handed sin, a sin that says, this is what it should be. No. That warrants rebuke. I'm not trying to speak like that. Now, maybe I, maybe in, in your life, maybe that's where you are. I need to hear that. I, but I don't mean that to most of us here. I don't want to come across that way. But I want to say something very clearly. The passage here is dealing with God fulfilling a promise to put His King over His resistant people. This is not God putting His King over Egypt. This is Israel who has said, for decades now we have known the promise. And we have said, "Mm, maybe not. God says, I have a different idea. It will come to pass, no matter how many Israelites resist it. So I say to you, church, perhaps a rebuke, but I don't think so. Every single one of us needs to be quite aware of something. The same God who is quite determined to have a people who exist under His reign... All along, He has always been about a people 
under His reign, under His authority. He gets His way. It comes to pass. When we pray, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord, the God of hosts says, yes, that's what I'm doing. And I'm starting in you, prayer. Hallowed be my name in you. My kingdom come in you. My will done in you. He is absolutely, quite certainly concerned that Christ be exalted, that Christ be honored, that Christ reign as King over all the nations. But that begins with Christ exalted, established, and lifted up greater and greater as Lord of you on the throne of your heart. Every human king secures his home throne first before expanding the borders. And if he doesn't, he falls. This one says the very same thing. I am concerned to be exalted among my own people. We are to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people declaring the praises of God that others might look at us and therefore honor Him looking at us. Again, this is why I caution. I find my tone even getting carried away. I do not mean to rebuke you because I do not know where you sit. I, don't, I do not I want to accuse you of high-handed sin because I don't know everything in your life. Maybe the Lord will accuse you of that. But, brother, sister, I lay it in front of you more... I'm 99% sure that more than you realize you are on different tracks from God. More than you realize... There is a God who has values, who has ideas, who has perspectives. He expresses them in a few ways. Let's, let's say ten. You shall have no other gods before me. There's where he starts. And he ends with, you shall not covet, which is the same thing. All of his ideas, his perspectives, his commandments say, me first. Brothers and sisters, sit down and ask. Lord, where do I set you aside and put me first? I'm trying to, I'll say it again, I'm trying to walk a very careful line here because I do not want to swing a sledgehammer indiscriminately. But every single one of us needs to sit down in front of God and say, 
Here's what you say, Lord. No other God before me. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Somebody really important said that. Where does the all fall down in my life, Lord? It does. It does. It does. And right there at that point, when you find it, you will find God at work to lift up His King over you. To reclaim the place of first. We're talking about King and rule and authority. Not really talking about ideas and suggestions and thoughts and perspectives. He's God Almighty, the I Am, the Commander of the armies of heaven. His Son is God come in flesh to reign. And He promised to give Him all the nations, including a people who were a holy people to Him. He is about that in your life, church. He's about that in our lives. I move backwards now. Because it is an integral part of what He is about all in the nations. He commends Himself to the world through the church. And He's about commending Himself everywhere. He's concerned for us first and the nations through us. He is mightily working to exalt Christ as your King. And this goes a long way towards explaining what's going on in your life. You stop and think about it. I've said we need to know that God is is claiming the nations for Christ so we can understand life. You need to also realize that He's claiming you for Christ so that you can understand life. And everything that's going on in your life everything that's going on in your life. Do you realize there's nothing accidental going on in your life? Not a moment of your existence happens independently over here with a God who checks in every now and then to figure out what He might be able to do with that. The Sovereign One controls every single thing in your life, as we've seen, working even through sin. Not despite it, through it. Not although there is sin, through sin. Add in the R, if you recall that. Every single thing going on in your life is His work in you to reclaim you, to put you beneath the reign of His King. Sometimes he discerns that what would be best would be days of sunshine and plenty and bounty. And sometimes he discerns what is best is other. All of it. You can look at the life of David and realize even when we don't think anything's going on, something's going on. Every moment of your life is God at work to bring you beneath His King. To bring you beneath the authority of His King. God is establishing and exalting David and the great David. The Lord is doing it according to His promise. To give to the King a people 
to give to the king nations and to give to you all of the kingdom blessings that he's promised you, which is what leads us to the second point. Here's the second observation. Which I will be more brief with. The Lord established and exalted David for the sake of his people. He did it for the sake of his people. Verse 12, David is anointed king. He's in his city, in his palace, in his house. Verse 12, and David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. For the sake of his people. Not just for David's sake. I mean, it certainly had benefit for David. But the point is, for the sake of his people, the ones who had been resisting him, Think about that for a second. Do you see in that the gracious love of God? The ones who had been resisting Him. All along, God has been engaged with the people who are resisting Him. And He is about bringing over them a ruler, not, as we might be tempted to think, so as to crush them or destroy them, but for their sake. All along, from the beginning of the book of Judges, we've seen this, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, this doesn't work. And by the time you get to the end of Judges, it's, it's explicit. This didn't work because there was no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The refrain at the end of the book of Judges, setting us up for this story that we've been looking at in Samuel. They need a king for their sake. And God said, I will promise it and I will bring it to pass. I will bring them all under the rule of this king. Well, it'd be easy to see in the language the way I was talking about it before, that under the rule of this king, that sounds kind of heavy and kind of hard and kind of harsh even. How can that be for their sake? And the, the key is in the connection between the two phrases of verse 2. To shepherd, to be prince, to be king, that is. To bring them under the, the reign of the king is to bring them as a flock to a shepherd. To leave them would be to leave them like sheep wandering every which place. All people, all people would need a shepherd and God's determination to bring us to, or to bring a king to, is to bring a shepherd and a flock together. Remember what I said about shepherds. Not only one who feels or emotes with them. You know, the, the worst caricature I could draw is the shepherd who just, you know, just hugs them and lets them wander off and pats them on the head and lets them go about their ways right off the cliff. Not, not that. Gentle, but a shepherd who is a, a leader, a guider, a feeder, a caretaker 
who guides them to peaceful water so that they can drink, to lush grass so they can eat, who feeds them what they need to grow up and keeps them from wandering off into the desert places where they will starve, who protects them from the enemies who will come kill them, whether it be bad weather, bad terrain, or wolves. The whole point with sheep, I imagine a number of us have read things about sheep and shepherds, the whole point with sheep is that they don't know what they need and they don't know where to find it. That should be humbling when you realize that's what we're called. We don't know what we need and we don't know where to find it. We need a shepherd. We need a king. What a gracious and good, merciful and loving, kind thing it is for God to bring this one over us and to make him to rule us. I use that word rule because I want to redeem the word rule also because rule's not hard, rule's good. To rule. A people who, if left to do whatever seems right in their own eyes, will kill themselves. He brings one to rule, that is to shepherd us. How does He rule us? How does He shepherd us? How does He guide us to where we can find feeding to give us life and to keep us away from that which would be death? How does He protect us? He feeds us. I'm going to talk about the tool that He uses and then the human tool that He uses sometimes. Primarily, How the Lord shepherds us is through Word and Spirit. Word and Spirit. The truth is what we need. The truth gives life. The truth fixes our minds. The truth renews our thinking so that we are transformed. The Word births. These are verses. I'm throwing these things out from the Bible. The Word, the truth but not just fact known, which is why it is Word and Spirit. Because it is not enough to just know what God wants. We must want what God wants. And that is a supernatural work that God the Spirit must accomplish. That's why we have to pray and ask God, Spirit of God, drive the Word into me in here. Not just here. Drive it in so that it's real, that it transforms me, that it actually renews me, makes me different. Shepherd me. Don't just be one of those folks who stands off and says to the sheep, a little to the right. They don't speak English. They're not going to go right. You've got to go over there and lead him. Spirit of God, would you take the Word of God, don't just proclaim it to me, but actually drive it into me and show me how to walk it. That's the Spirit of God's work. It is not enough to just know it. We must have God to cause it to be known. Spirit and word, and human instrumentality-wise, very often he uses under-shepherds. You know the language. You know obviously the language carries through to Jesus, the good shepherd. You could trace it all through the Old Testament. The idea of shepherding runs all through the Old Testament until God says of the shepherds of Israel, I myself will come shepherd the people. An amazing passage in Ezekiel. I say to the shepherds of Israel, what have you done? You fed yourselves. Calls all the shepherds to account across the ages and says, I myself will come and shepherd them in David. 
wait, David's been dead for hundreds of years. What are you talking about in David? You know who he's talking about. I myself will come shepherd them, and David will be prince and will lead them out, and they will be fed, and they will live. David is the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. And then he uses under-shepherds, as Paul tells elders and pastors of the, of the church, as Peter tells elders and pastors of the church, to shepherd the flock of God that is, that is in your midst. But we all know that every single one of us human shepherds is going to be just like David, even the best of us. Yay! Uh. He will use sometimes human instruments, human shepherds, but woe to us who trust in human shepherds. We'll all fail. Woe to us who reject human shepherds appointed by God who use spirit and word. So we look through human shepherds at the good shepherd and say, would you please shepherd me? Would you bring your word to me and by your spirit drive it into me? He is doing that in you, for you, always. Even though you may be resisting Him. That's His agenda that goes a long way, as I said, to explain what's going on in this world. He is about shepherding you. Sometimes as He discerns through good, and sometimes as He discerns through hard and bad and evil. Which is not to say that evil is not evil. It's to say that evil will be used for good. Intended by God. So Christian, if I boil all this down here at the end, realize God is about in your life and in the church and in the nations, but in your life, God is about faithfully keeping all of His promises to you. That was the first the first tier from the first point, you remember? Faithfully keeping all of His promises to you to bring all of the fullest blessings of the kingdom to you. And how is He doing that? Second point, by shepherding you, bringing you under the reign of a good king who by word and spirit will guide you. Do not resist Him, Christian. Do not resist Him. Yield to Him. Perhaps I might say... Two, two quick things here. I say yield. You say, how am I? I don't know. Well, look for fear and complaining. There's a, there's a bunch of stuff you could put there. I'll just put two there because I think often in our lives, when we bump into God's will against our will, we find fear and complaining rise up in us. Fear, doubt, uncertainty, insecurity, Sometimes it leads to despairing fear. I, I don't know if this is going to happen. The promise seems like it's way out there and there seems to be something that's more threatening right here. And Can I trust God? I don't know and I'm afraid. And then also on the other side of that sometimes complaining, anger, bitterness, griping, frustration. I find those two things operative in my life all the time. And this is why I say against him more than we realize because oftentimes I find myself fearing and complaining and never equate it with resisting the rule of the king until I stop and think oh in the fearing and complaining what I'm saying is God has discerned thus and so and I've said no that's wrong I know better oh that's what's going on that's why I'm complaining 
You just found, you just located resistance if you find fear and complaining. So you repent. And you say, God, in your word, show me what's true. And by your spirit, press it into me and give me faith. Show me a God who has redeemed me from every adversity and give me faith to believe you will redeem me tomorrow. Christian, we are engaged in something here. We we are not wandering through our lives. We are engaged in something. We are being engaged by someone. Someone who is working in every situation in your life to claim you. To draw you in. To bring you under for your sake. That He might lead you to where you would grow and keep you from what would kill you. Repent and trust Him. Rest there with Him. Take a moment to ask, where am I saying no? Where is there a disconnect between your will and mine? Repent and trust Him. God is about honoring, exalting this King He's established for your sake. Bless God. Repent and trust Him. Let me pray. Lord, would you meet with your people now? Would you speak to them, the individual people here, young and old, male and female, Christian and non-Christian, would you speak to them as individuals whatever message that is that you need them to hear? Speak it powerfully, I pray. Spirit of God, would you lift up the great David as king. Would you subjugate your people to him for our sake? Would you claim those who are running and resisting? Run them down, Lord. Capture them for their sake. You are our Lord. We have no good apart from you. Capture us for our sake to bring us to the good that is found only in You. In Your presence there is fullness of joy at Your right hand, pleasure forevermore. God, we need that. God, I want that. God, I know that Your people here want that. Bring it about, please. So speak now as we sit here, Lord. Speak to Your people and show them where they need to repent and where they need to believe. Exalt Jesus and make him greater and greater over us and in the nations, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-2000.
1-800-242-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.